This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, April 5th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Why has it taken so long to correct the errors contained in dietary advice of the last several decades? Why have the federal government and other institutions been so complicit in refusing to challenge specific beliefs about what constitutes a good diet? Gary Taubes is author of the new book, The Case Against Sugar. We spoke last week at a Cato Institute event in New York. Since the 1970s, uh, the government has uh, had um, nutrition guidelines. Uh, What do you think the result of the government deciding to jump into that task has been? Well, we don't know what the result is. We only know what's associated with that task. Whether it's causal or not remains to be seen, but it happens to be associated with explosions in the rates of obesity and diabetes, which was the observation that got me into this business. I remember sitting at a Starbucks in Potomac, Maryland, where a former director of the Office of Disease Prevention, NIH, said 1984, when we told the whole country to go on a low-fat diet, we thought, we didn't know if it would prevent heart disease. We thought if nothing else would make them thinner. And 30 years later, 20 years later, when he said this, we have obesity and diabetes epidemics. One of the fascinating aspects of my research is, this was clear even in the 1960s, that you could divide the medical research community in asking this question, what's the cause of heart disease in America, into two sort of two sides. And one side tended to be doctors who thought in terms of, you know, people are dying out there, and we have to stop that, and we have to prevent. And this is a kind of public health thinking as well. And I now understand that all too well. And as such, we don't have time to do the definitive research. We don't have time. They would say, we don't have time to dot the I's and cross the T's. And the other side were these critical, skeptical scientists, and they would say, if you don't have time to dot the I's and cross the T's, you don't know if what the truth is. And if you don't know what the truth is, you don't know how to act, what's how to prevent these heart disease. And the problem is this we have to act feel. These you know, proactive researchers just kept pushing and pushing, and all the, the American Heart Association got involved, and then the journalists would think that the American Heart Association was an unbiased source. And they were unbiased in many ways, but not on this scientific issue, which they knew nothing about. And you get this sort of cascade effect where, you know, the American Heart Association, the media, the researchers, Congress gets involved. Even while they're studying in the 1970s, now several studies are cranked up that cost in the neighborhood of $250 million total. And congressional committees are getting into the business of giving us dietary advice before the diet studies are done. And then when the studies are done, they're perceived of as failures if they fail to confirm the hypothesis. So if Congress tells scientists, okay, you can spend $150 million to test this hypothesis, the assumption is the hypothesis is true and that the research will confirm that. And if it turns out the hypothesis is not true, that's a waste of money to politicians, or at least some of them. Even so though you've learned something. Even though you've learned something vitally important. <laughs> So there are all kinds of issues, and with uh, I remember the first story I ever did for the journal Science on salt and blood pressure. A former FDA official said science is the number one destabilizing force in public health because it's, the two are almost mutually uh, exclusive in what it takes you know, what it takes to do them and what you believe you have to do in a public health 
issue, problem. It seems like a textbook case of the government saying, we must do something. This is something, therefore we must do this. Pretty close. So this is what everybody, what you do is you, you, you take a vote. You, you literally take a vote. What do you think we should do? You ask everybody you know in the community, even people who know nothing about it except what they read in the journals. And if you have a, a scenario in which maybe there's 20, 20 researchers who legitimately study it or legitimately know something about it, and there, there's 11 on one side and 9 on the other, by the time the 11 do their thing, for lack of a the journal articles, they write the journal articles, they serve on the committees, they're seen as the proactive people are actually doing something, the rest are naysayers, we know that term. And then you take your vote and you suddenly see that there's like 250 to 30. Clearly that's a majority we know how to act and it's all sort of a manifestation of group think. You have no idea what the truth is. But when you apply political methods, like yeah. taking a vote to what ought to be the competitive process of scientific discovery, of challenging assumptions, of uh, trying to find uh, flaws in methodology and that sort of thing, it, it seems to reduce science to um, uh, trying to establish known truths with majorities. Exactly what it does. And I, I literally, I don't know what the solution is. I mean, I often, when I lecture about this, I say, you know, well-intentioned liberals just like myself made the wrong decisions, did the wrong things, and ended up probably doing the nation an extraordinary amount, maybe even an unprecedented amount of harm. I probably shouldn't use the word unprecedented because I'm sure we've screwed up in bigger ways that I have no idea. Um, the... We're in the same situation now with sugar, so I'm arguing a very similar situation with sugar, and it's interesting because I don't know how to solve that either. I don't believe, I don't think government regulation is the answer. I think education is the answer, and then I'm wondering what are the unintended consequences of telling people that sugar is very likely shortening their life dramatically. How, what kind of damage am I going to do? Many of the things that I find myself saying in 2017 are the same things that were said at the first press conference when George McGovern released his dietary goals for Americans in 1977, the first time politicians in Congress ever gave effectively diet advice. And they said the same thing I'm saying. We can't imagine the downside. Well, that's unintended consequences are usually unperceived consequences. They're unknown unknowns. But when you have the government making determinations about what is healthy and what is not healthy, uh, um, deeming something, mm. some things healthy and other things not healthy, you sort of crystallize that in a way that isn't easily defeated as a, a, as a scientific hypothesis. Like you can knock down a scientific hypothesis with good evidence, but a government regulation or set of, of guidelines, it's, it's a little more of a challenge. And you're absolutely right, but I think it's, there's a bigger question because certainly the government locked in their advice and the American Heart Association did the same thing. So it's very hard for an organization of any kind uh, that sees itself as a credible disseminator of information to say, excuse me, we were wrong. You know, we apologize if we 
killed some of your relatives prematurely and maybe shortened your own life. But, you know, people make mistakes, and so do institutions. Look at Vietnam. I mean, we get it. And, you know, we were wrong. And here's what we should have said, and now we're saying that, and you should take us seriously, and nobody's going to take them seriously ever again. That's it. You lose your credibility. You can't. So the best scientists are supposed to be the ones who find it easiest to say, I am wrong. Yeah, I've been would like to write a book about how, you know, that just said very, th they, they work on the hardest problems. They speculate about the answers. They misinterpret their evidence. And the key to doing good science, one of the keys is to be able to say I was wrong. But you're right, when institutions get involved, that process stops. The other thing that happens is when I think scientific institutions get too large. So one of the ways we, f you know, as we fund science in this country and as the academic research institution has grown and grown and the number of journals has grown and grown, basically you start generating a lot of noise. And everyone generating noise realizes that their careers advance if they generate noise in, in line with the conventional thinking. So there's a bias towards sort of conventional thinking confirmation. And it's virtually impossible to get a signal heard and trans, you know, communicated. Somebody has to decide what a signal is. And if it's not the government, then the question, who is it? So what I'm arguing with sugar, again, it's an easy target. But at some point, somebody has to say, this argument is right. Because if it's right, it's profound. And I keep pushing for better research, but research is slow. And there are people dying out there. And we don't have time to dot the I's and cross the T's. So it's a tremendously complex problem. You wrote a book, a great book, years ago called uh, Good Calories, Bad Calories, and I enjoyed that book very much. I've, uh, in, until this book, which I haven't read yet, uh, uh, came out, I've, I've recommended that book to many, many people. Oh, thank you. You go into some details about how uh, scientific evidence was misinterpreted regarding uh, red meat there's so, again, there's so many issues here. So just to take the red meat, for example, red meat is demonized on the basis of, aside from the ethical and environmental issues, it's demonized on the basis of observational epidemiology. And this is the same point I was making before. This is a tool that was basically pioneered in the 1950s for chronic diseases with research that implicated cigarettes and lung cancer. But smokers had a 20-fold increased risk of a very rare disease, lung cancer, than did non-smokers. So it sort of functioned to uh, reliably convict cigarettes of causing lung cancer. But then researchers started using it for a lot of other disease states. They didn't understand anything about what they were doing. They'd never done it before. It was a new technology. It had all kinds of possible ways in which the researchers can be fooled. But by the time they got to the point where they were uh, releasing their results and uh, over-interpreting their results, they were committed to these very expensive studies, and they were committed to a line of research that, that I would say is a pseudoscience. And now that same science dominates public health advice, including the advice not to eat meat, doing something that I think it simply logically can't do. I don't even believe there should be... I, I'm stunned that there's a debate about this, as much as I've been able to create a debate. Um, but we have so much invested in it. There are tens of thousands of researchers who do this kind of work. Um, what do they do? I, I had one of the most prominent epidemiologists in the country say, but if you're right and I agree with you, what are we going to do? What are these 20,000 epidemiologists going to do? So it's all about, you know, good science. The first principle of science, Richard Feynman said, is you must not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. So 
you're constantly wondering, am I fooling myself? You're living on this sort of anxiety edge where you can pull yourself back easily as soon as you think you are. And then we have all these sociological, political, and economic forces that commit people and institutions. And again, I don't know how to solve that. So even if you take the government out of it entirely, you have lines of research that may yeah. depend on a method that may be discredited or may or a series of methods that are discredited you still have this this very group a group interested in preserving that technique or the method or this whole line of research and they're going to fight for it and and they're going to fight for it cuz they believe you know it's so um We've, I fundamentally believe we've turned much of science into something that it simply could never be to function. And the government has played a crucial role both in the way it funds it, which sounded like a great idea at the time, and, and the, uh, you know, just building up these huge institutions that the, the, a natural emergent property of institutions is groupthink. When should government fund science? I know Terence Keeley's answer, my colleague at the Cato Institute. What's your answer? What did Terence say? <laughs> he said, uh, with very, with very limited exceptions, no. That's interesting. But who does he think should fund it? And I know I should be talking to Terence, so I apologize. For I think, in broadly speaking, the the private sector. Uh, that's an interesting problem. Let me give you an example of, so I can't answer that question. I would love the government to fund the right kinds of studies. I. Just like anyone else, I have a hypothesis. I think it's important. I can imagine how it should be tested. They're ludicrously expensive tests. Um, it would be wonderful if the private sector would step up and do it. They're, they're, um, the individuals who have that kind of money tend not to. There are a lot of things very high net worth individuals can do with their money to help the world and doing more research often doesn't seem to be at the top of that list and I can understand that. Um, somebody's got to do it. I would argue, you know, it gets back to the signal to noise problem. So um, today I think we have these noise generating machines, literally thousands, tens of thousands of journals that publish you know, I, in, in obesity and nutrition, the fields I followed, maybe 200 papers published a week. Nobody has time to read them. Nobody does read them. You know, most of them, 99 point some percent are noise. So in an ideal world, they don't get funded. Somebody says, look, these are the problems we have. And this is how functioning science, the golden age of periods in science when paradigms shift, it's because there are very smart people, usually a handful of them, saying this is a signal, this is noise, these signals are in contradiction, what experiment can we do to resolve those? And they lead you towards something that looks like truth. Somebody's got to play that role. Who's it going to be? <laughs> You know, it's, and I don't, that's yet another thing that I do not have the answer for. Gary Taubes is author of the new book, The Case Against Sugar. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.